Well, greetings, everyone. Good morning. Grace and peace. Grace and peace, indeed. It is good to see y'all. I send uh, uh, regrets from Pastor Kurt this morning. Uh, Jason is in the state tennis tournament this week. Uh, I think it's in Waco uh, is where they are. And so they'll be coming back this evening. And so uh, hoping that Jason has a lot of success there. Uh, but I know Kurt misses being here with y'all this morning. Um, Going to land us. Uh, where we uh, began our study of David, you know, for those first few weeks, we prayed together Psalm 131. If y'all can remember back that far, uh, we've been at this for a while, uh, but just such a good psalm and good way to center our time uh, together here and, and uh, kind of name our hopes as we gather around uh, God's word this morning. So uh, let's pray together. Our hearts are not proud, Lord. Our eyes are not haughty. And we do not concern ourselves with great matters or things too wonderful for us. But we have stilled and quieted our souls. Like weaned children with our mothers. Like weaned children is our souls within us. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen indeed. Okay. We are in Second Samuel chapter 21. And... Um, Heck, I can't remember. How far how, did we get all the way down to? Did we get through verse seventeen, or did we stop at verse fifteen? Y'all remember? We stopped at fifteen. Okay, just wanted to make sure that uh, we were we were on the same page. I was uh, pondering this whole section a little bit, and uh, doing a little reading about it yesterday. Uh, if you'll just flip back to chapter twenty-one, the beginning of chapter twenty-one, if you'll just put a line there between chapter 20 and chapter 21. This is one time, uh, at least, that the uh, people who put the verses and the, the chapters and the verses got it pretty pretty right. Uh, sometimes they'll have a... I can't remember the guy's name that did this, but he did it on horseback. And it's like, I think sometimes the horse stepped in a pothole or something, and they like uh, just missed where they should have put these chapter breaks because sometimes they really they really hurt us because you look at those chapter breaks and it's like, that's important. That should start a new train of thought, right? And uh, sometimes it just interrupts a train of thought that really kind of fouls us up. But here he gets it right. Really, chapter 21 uh, through the end of the book, uh, I don't even know... Um, it seems like some of this stuff may be out of order. I don't know if we said that last week or not, but it feels like we're not exactly sure where some of these things fit. But what we do know, and you'll notice this, if you'll remember last week we talked about what kind of disaster happened. It was a famine, right? So you have this famine that happens, and then today you we're going to have this discussion of some of David's most important soldiers. Um, and then we're going to have a psalm, and then it's going to start over, but in reverse order. There's going to be another psalm, 
another discussion of David's mighty men, and then the recollection of another catastrophe. Uh, if you'll remember last week, the uh, catastrophe was related to how Saul broke covenant with the Gibeonites. First, the books of First and Second Samuel are about three people, primarily, are about Samuel, uh, who wrote them, well, most of it, Saul and David. Saul is the cause of that first calamity, right? Because he breaks covenant with the Gibeonites. And then David, curiously, is the cause of the last calamity in the book because he chooses to take a census. Hmm. It's so interesting. Why is God so opposed to taking censuses? Uh, we'll, and we'll get to that later. So what, what obviously has happened... Um, you know, Samuel is long dead by now, right? But the, so the person who put Samuel's work together, uh, he did this, he, he had this extra material, right? And so he tags it onto the end of the book in kind of a stylized way, an A, B, C, C, B, A way. Does that make sense? I think so, right? Anybody have any questions on that? So just kind of as we as we follow along in this last section, just kind of keep track. So last week we got A, the first calamity, and now we're going to talk about uh, these mighty men of David, uh, or these mighty warriors of David here in, cha- in verse 15 of chapter 21. All right. In verse 15, it, I would just write over in, in your margin there, First um, Chronicles 20. Verse 4 through 8, um, the same um, uh, reflections on these uh, mighty men or mighty warriors are in, in that book as well, in those verses, chapter and verse as well. And the, 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 uh, the details are slightly different, but uh, very, very similar. All right. We ready? Let's do it. Once again... There was a battle between the Philistines. And so whether this is late in David's life or this is a like a reference when David was fighting the Philistines that we've already already talked about, not really sure. Uh, David went down with his men to fight against the Philistines, and he became exhausted. And Ishbi, Benobi, <laughs> uh, one of the descendants of Rapha, whose bronze spearhead weighed 300 shekels. And everybody's supposed to go, ooh, 300 shekels. Anybody remember how much uh, Goliath's weighed? Who said more? That is correct. Twice as much, Mr. Sievert. Um, so, I mean, it's significant, it's big, uh, but... Uh, that's, you know, reading, knowing the, the first part of, uh, first Samuel, you're supposed to keep that in mind. Yeah, that's big, but not as big as, uh, Goliath. Nobody can outdo David, right? So that's kind of, I think that's the important thing to, that the writer is picking up on here. And who was armed with a new sword said he would kill David. But Abishai, Abishai son of Zuriai, came to David's rescue. He struck the Philistine down and killed him. Then David's men swore to him, Never again will you go out with us to battle, 
so that the lamp of Israel will not be extinguished. And so, again, this could be in chronological order uh, here, but I want you to notice something, a couple of things. If you'll turn back to uh, first Sa- or to Second Samuel, chapter seven, verse one. After the king was settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him. He said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am living in a palace of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. And then y'all remember uh, that David expresses this desire to build a temple, but the key thing is that God had given him rest, right? All right, flip over to uh, chapter 11. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. So you can see how this could have happened between those two chapters, right? Because David had become exhausted at some point in his life relative to going into battle. And I think the way the author is writing that in, in at the beginning of 11 is... I've always taken it this way, is David should have been out in the battlefield. Uh, but he's at home being distracted uh, by looking at Bathsheba on the, on the roof, right? That's kind of the way I've always taken it. But it seems like David may have, may have been kind of working at the whims of his men uh, relative to his ability to stay engaged in the battle these days. Regardless, in chapter 21, verse 15, David is in the later stages of his life. All right. Any questions on that? So the things that David did, David's men do. Right? All right, verse 18. In the course of time, there was another battle with the Philistines at Gob. At that time, Sibekah, the Hushite killed Soph, one of the de- descendants of Rapha. All right, so this Rapha guy keeps coming up. Did y'all notice that? Did y'all's uh, notes in the bottom of your Bible say anything about old Rapha? Anybody got any Rapha notes? <laughs> Evidently, this Rapha is... Um, there's like all sorts of conjecture about who Rapha is. Y'all remember in uh, any study of Genesis that you've done um, about the Nephilim, about these giants that history or tradition holds that this Rapha is some sort of descendant, if not of the Nephilim, some other giant race of people that produced these amazing warriors. All right. So whenever David killed Goliath, kind of the contrast was is David's this huge guy and David's this young boy, right? But this is kind of brawn going against brawn, you might say, by them talking, by the writer uh, invoking this name of Rapha here. All right, so there's two of them. Verse 19. 
In another battle with the Philistines at Gob, Elhanah, son of Jarar Orim, at the uh, Bethlehemite. Now, who else was from Bethlehem? David. Yep. Killed Goliath, the Gittite. So the original Goliath was from where? Gath, that's right. And now we have this, another Goliath from uh, this, the, the, a area called uh, of the, the Gittites who had a spear with a shaft like a weaver's rod. Hmm. Any thoughts on what that may be pointing to? Spear with a shaft like a weaver's rod. I don't know. Very curious. All right. Verse 20. And so another battle which took place at Gath. There was a huge man with six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot. 24 in all. He also was descended from Rapha when he taunted Israel. Jonathan, son of Shemaiah, David's brother, killed him. So this Jonathan, of course, is a different Jonathan than Saul's Jonathan. Uh, this Jonathan, Jonathan is David's nephew. And so, you know, one of the curious things, uh, especially in the latter half of 2 Samuel, of course, there's a lot of discussion about, um, good grief, my name, just, my head just went blank. Uh, Absalom, right? David's son, who revolted against him, revolted against him. But there's really not a discussion about any of other, any of David's other kids. But obviously, David was keeping thing, uh, keeping some family members close by, and his nephew was one of his uh, was one of his big supporters. And uh, again, the things David did, uh, this guy does. These were four descendants of Rapha in Gath, and they fell at the hands of David and his men. So these were big guys that they took down, that David's men took down, and um, just sort of sort of like David had taken down the, 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 uh, the giant Goliath, so they were able to do that as well. So what life-changing stuff are we missing in here? I don't know. <laughs> it's, uh, again, it feels a little bit thrown together to me. Um, there may be some things uh, there that we're missing, uh, but I'm really not sure. Um, Notice in this section there's no mention of the Lord, which I think is curious, because of all that, and, and we, Kurt and I, we've tried to, to, to help take note of that when David calls on the name of the Lord. He did that last week, right? Whenever he's in, whenever they're in this place of no rain, and um, uh, he calls on the name of the Lord, calls out to God. Uh, but here, there's none of that. But now we're going to get the Lord all over the place, right? 
Of course, David is known uh, for writing, I think it's a little north of 70 of the Psalms in uh, the book of Psalms. Here uh, in Second uh, Samuel, if you, and if we take First and Second Samuel together, none of David's Psalms have been listed until now. Now, there has been some songs that have been sung. You all remember what the big song, the, the greatest hit of First uh, uh, and Second Samuel is, song-wise? That's right. Very good, guys. Way to go. Uh, Saul has ki- killed his thousands. David has ki- killed his tens of thousands and made Saul terribly jealous. Oh, something to ponder for sure. Um, and so here we take this right turn and uh, we move from all of this killing and uh, David's men killing these giants, these descendants of Rapha, to David singing these songs of praise. And um, one of the things for sure is there, there's this contrast, and we've been lifting that contrast up throughout First and Second Samuel, that there are moments that David seems to be very much rooted in the presence of God. And curiously, there's other times that he's just not. And the Psalms really invite us to see the other other side of David's heart in those moments when he is not at his best. And so uh, there's all sorts of uh, tension in this psalm, these Psalms. And uh, it's like, if you read the book of Psalms and David's Psalms there, it's like, golly, David... Can you talk about anything else besides your enemies? It's it's like it's really annoying. But if you think about it, what weighs us down? Challenging and difficult circumstances, however they manifest manifest themselves, it weighs us down. For David, since he was anointed as king, who was kind of his enemy number one? Saul was right and then um is 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 the Saul problem uh, finally takes care of itself in some ways then he has enemies within his own uh, nation he has enemies within his own family however it gets manifest these enemies as david being the anointed and then david being king these are the ones that are trying to rob him of life So I think that's one of the ways that the Psalms can help us is as you are struggling in life and life is a struggle. It's not all, uh, all uh, fun and games and, and a bed of roses. We know this, right? That the Psalms can help us. Maybe things do not rise in our mind, in our heart to the level of our enemies, but we could just insert in there, whatever our challenges are. And I think that the Psalms can give us some some clarity about what we're trying to trying to navigate through. Okay. Chapter twenty two. David saying to the Lord, to Yahweh. The words of this song, when Yahweh, the Lord, delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. 
again. Second uh, Samuel chapter seven. That was the this was the station in life that positioned him to say, "Okay, I've got space now to think about building a temple." Now that wasn't in the cards for David because he shed so much blood, right? Uh, but so there's a connection between here and back in Second Samuel chapter seven. He said, "The Lord is my." What do you have there? Does everybody have rock? All right, everybody has rock. So, of course, God is not a rock. We're clear with that, right? <laughs> you ever think the Bible is completely true in everything that He says? Well, hold on a second. The Lord is not a rock, but this is this is an idiom for the Lord is the strongest thing in the world. You know, you'll you'll see in Israel, they always throw what? There is an abundance of rocks in Israel, right? And uh, that that is the image that you are supposed whenever the lord is imaged as a rock the lord is strong the lord is eternal right there's never not a time where there wasn't rocks that kind of thing there you go and christ is the ultimate cornerstone very good all right so as the lord is a rock he is also a fortress fortress is also a means of strength and protection and my deliverer. So David has experienced deliverance after deliverance after deliverance. And when David is at his best, he is not wise in his own eyes, as Psalm 131 uh, invites us to stay away from. Not wise in his own eyes, thinking that he is the means of his own deliverance. But he roots that in God. My God is my rock, verse 3. In whom I take refuge, my shield, and the you have horn there. Yeah, just a way that whenever the, you see horn in the Old Testament, the horn is a num- another symbol of strength. Is my shield and my strength and the strength of my salvation? Uh, he is the one that protects me. And just notice. One of the, the key, you know, like in, in North American poetry, like when you read poetry, um, I'm terrible at reading like really difficult poetry. I'm just like, what does that mean? I just, I just really struggle with it. But like basic poetry I get because what is the kind of the key element of uh, English poetry? Rhyming. That is right. It it rhymes. Most Hebrew poetry does not rhyme. Hebrew poetry repeats itself through a series of doublets. And so, so you'll notice this psalm and then the psalms. You say one thing and then you you say the same thing again in a slightly different way to bring the force of what you're trying to say to bear on on your life and on the situation. So in verse one, in verse 2, 
He's a rock. Verse three, he's a rock. Uh, the second part of verse three, he's a stronghold. Again, he's, I mean, all right, David, we get the point. Jewish literature in general loves to tell the same story twice, if not more. Trying to think of an example of this. I have to come back to it, um, but you'll you'll uh, you'll notice that they'll tell this long story, and then something small will happen, and then the story gets retold, um, and then that also is part of the way they write poetry as well. He is my stronghold, my refuge, and my savior. From violent men, you save me. Yeah. <laughs> David's a violent man. Yeah. Uh, it's like one of the, uh, I think one of the curious things about uh, Scripture is that, especially in the Old Testament, God gets accused of being angry a lot. And, you know, it, it takes all the way until Exodus 32 or 33 before God gets mad. I mean, just sit with that for a little while. You mean all the way through the book of Genesis? He's not angry? No, he's not. But he is grieved. And you know why he is grieved? Because of violence. Flip over real quick to Genesis. Genesis chapter 6. Just going to read a few verses here. Verse, verse 5. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on earth had become, that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was evil all the time. Verse 6, the Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth and his heart was filled with pain. So that's different than anger, right? So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind, mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals and creatures that move along the ground, for I am grieved that I have made them. But Noah had found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Verse 11, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of, what do you have there? Violence. Anybody have anything different besides violence? All right. Rotten to the core. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Drew is uh, reading from the, the New Living Bible. The Living Bible, yeah. Not the new one, the, the Living Bible. Yeah, that's a, that's a good one. How would you... It's, it's like it's one of those things, you know it when you see it. Um, violence. When does something become violent? Say that again. Eating up with sin. Eating up with sin. 
and then that eaten up with sin. What, I mean, it's pretty easy to say that, that Cain, whenever he killed his brother, that was an act of violence, right? Uh, normally, we don't take it to that extreme, but like, it's, it's almost like, you know it when you see it. When it becomes physical, um, my kids may say, Dad, you're violent with your words, even, right? <laughs> like whenever, you, whenever you're frustrated or whatever, yeah. And so it's like, it's harshness. It's, it's times when pain is inflicted, I think, because um, that's what, you know, God says his heart is full of pain um, relative to what's going on with creation. Um, it's interesting, you know, we have a war going on in Ukraine. And I started reading some stuff over the weekend about some things that are being reported. It's like one would assume that Europeans were civilized, that even Russians would be civilized. But you see, when war happens, all of, you know, it brings out the animal in us, right? And the, the raping that is obviously happening and the types of people that the Russians are raping, like women in their seventies and repeatedly doing this. It's like, it's, it's, it makes me not, I, I like, do I, can I really believe that that's happening? But I think we become so sheltered that it's just, it's beyond our capacity to recognize it. Right. Oh, but anybody else have a question on like what is violent when you see violence when you see it? So there we've got that going on, and then Will Smith slaps Chris Rock, and that is an act of what? You, you hear you hear all you know everybody has an opinion on this, right? And it's so interesting. Violence in all of its forms is unacceptable. Is that really an act of violence? Probably. But you see what I mean. That's a whole different level of violence compared to a Russian, uh, Russian soldiers uh, gang raping women in their seventies, or raping anybody for that matter, right? So, say that again. Yeah, and you know, Elaine and I were talking about it. Certainly, American soldiers have done the same. At some point in in in, in history during war, war does this to you. And, uh, but it's hopefully not as much. I hope, Lord Jesus, have mercy. But the, the, the level of violence in, uh, and the type of violence in, as Pastor Kurt was talking about last week, in a tribal, uh, world, um, it's it would be really really tough to bear, tough to see, and tough to watch, and that is what David is celebrating the fact that in the face of violence, God shows up, and that God is there to protect people, and it protected him right in the face of violence. And I think that's a challenge, right? Is when people. Call on the name of the Lord when they are suffering violence and nothing changes. What does that do to a person's faith? Something to ponder. I call to the Lord. 
is worthy of praise. And I am saved from my enemies. Like inherent in praise. Oh, my goodness. I'm just going on and on. I did not realize that the time had gotten away from us. Um, just ponder that for a second. So we're having this discussion about enemies. And in the midst of this discussion about enemies is this uh, reality of praise. When you praise God, what are you doing? That's the word hallelujah, by the way. We'll get a lot of hallelujahs in church on Sunday. That's Palm Sunday. Uh, hallelujah. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, right? Uh, it's a command to praise God. What, how do you, like what's going on in your soul whenever you praise God? Seems to me it's like an act of gratitude, right? And like gratitude in the face of difficult and challenging circumstances, there is nothing that can stand against it. When we are able to say thank you to God, whether it's for walking us with us now in the midst of our difficult circumstances or for noticing how God has walked with us in the past, gratitude is so key to maintaining our focus because that's what that's what the psalms do is they they keep you focused on God regardless of your circumstances. And one of the key ways to do that is to offer gratitude to God. So we'll uh, we'll put, push the pause button there on uh, verse four. We'll come back to it, and uh, we'll probably clip through this psalm a little bit quicker uh, next week. But thought that that was a good way to get us started, um, just recognizing those key components of this psalm. And so there's your challenge for the week. Maybe you have a difficult circumstances that stance that is bearing down on your soul right now. I'm going to pray that God will give you strength in the midst of that difficult circumstance. But I will also encourage you and challenge you to find three things that you are exceedingly grateful to God for regardless of that circumstance. Good challenge? All right. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your never-ending presence with us. Lord, we ask that when we suffer, when we are the object of violence, Lord, that we will not return the favor. But Lord, that we will trust your unending love. And Lord, that that will be a signal to us to let gratitude well up in our hearts. So God, to that end, Lord, help us to walk with you today. And when people see us, may they think of you. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said. Much love, gentlemen. We'll see you all next week. Real quick, uh, a week from Saturday, we're having the big Easter, the church is having a big Easter bash. We're expecting, you know, between two and 400 people. And I need some help cooking pork butt. If anybody would like to, I'll provide the meat. 
If anybody would be willing to cook one or two uh, pork butts, that would be awesome. No pressure, but thought I would offer it to y'all first. Let me know. Thanks.